Do you have a bucket list? I think everybody needs to have a bucket list. Bucket lists are so much fun. You can add all kinds of things that you want to do, explore places you want to travel, foods you want to eat at different places, whatever comes to mind, things that you have not been able to do just yet. Hi, I'm Heike Yeats, and I'm the host of the Pursue Your Spark podcast. I like to welcome all the new listeners and welcome back to our current listeners. Our guest today will share her story, how she started her bucket list, what things are on her list and which ones are the ones that she already checked off and how she's hoping to inspire others through her travels, through her stories and her books to take life by its horns and start ticking off those items on your bucket list. So let's dive into our feature content all about adventures that are on your bucket list and how you can confidently start diving into your bucket list. Hi, I'm Heike Yates, a fitness and nutrition coach with over 35 years of experience. I'm on a mission to empower women over 50 to reclaim their health, strength, and vibrancy and step into the best version of themselves during this extraordinary phase of life. You're joining an incredible global community of women who have decided to stop dimming their light and ignite their inner spark instead. I'm thrilled to have you with us. On this podcast, I break down complex fitness, nutrition, and mindset concepts into easy, achievable steps that you can incorporate into your life today. No matter where you are, it's never too late to start. I sit down with some truly amazing people who've gone from tough times to great heights and experts who share tips to tackle your challenges. You'll feel supported knowing you're not alone in your journey. It's like having a personal support team in your corner. Together, we're going to change the conversation around aging, break down barriers, and reveal the true power of being over 50. So let's challenge the norms, take action, and say, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Well, hi, everybody. Let me introduce you to our guest today, Julia Godfellow-Smith. She's a freelance writer, speaker, an ordinary woman doing something extraordinary, living her bucket list. She's happy to help pilgrims find their way and has written several books. Her new book, Walk in the Camino, A Journey for the Heart and Soul, is out mid-April of 2023. We're recording this episode earlier, so be on the lookout as you uh, will come across the episode. So Julia lives close to Malvern Hills in England with her husband, Mike. Welcome to the show today, Julia. Thank you very much, Heiko. It's a delight to be on here. Awesome. First question. What does it mean to you to stay healthy? It means freedom, really. If you're healthy, <laughs> you can do whatever you like. If you're not healthy, it impacts on so many other aspects of your life, whatever that is. So health has to be at the top of the list of priorities. Good, because 
I warned Julia that she's got to be prepared. I'll ask whatever comes to mind. And I have my questions because our topic is around exercise and specific about hiking the Camino, which we will dive in today and other things that Julia has had on her bucket list and may still have on her bucket list going forward. So I warned her, I said, don't be prepared, just be ready. (laughs) (laughs) Now you started your adventurous lifestyle when you had a health scare at the age 50. Tell us more what happened that triggered that change. I had whooping cough. I mean, of all things in this day and age, who would expect to have whooping cough? I coughed and and I was ill for about three months. I would get up in the morning, go to work, cough all day, no idea why. I was exhausted when I got home. My husband would cook me dinner. I'd go straight to bed and I'd get up in the morning and do the same. And at the weekends, I would sleep ready for work again on Monday morning, which wasn't a lot of fun. And as I say, I was ill for about three months. And while they were trying to work out what was wrong with me, the consultant did lots of other tests on my pulmonary function, so my lungs, and found that I have restricted pulmonary function. I've always had what I consider to be small lungs, so I get out of breath really quickly. But I've always, that's never stopped me from doing anything. Now, on the day that he diagnosed whooping cough, it was an absolute relief that that's what had been wrong, because by that point, I, w- I was better. And for adults, there, there really aren't any long-term implications for whooping cough. As I was leaving the consultant's office, I turned around and I said to him, oh, and the other business with small lungs will just carry on as normal, won't it? And he said, oh, no, you'll be particularly susceptible to respiratory disease as you get older. And that sort of hit me. It was, it was an offhand comment by him. And it just hit me like a freight train. I thought, why am I doing this? Why am I commuting for hours every day into a job that I don't particularly enjoy when I could be doing something that I love and I might not be able to do in five years or 10 years time? So that was that was the thing that made me decide to pursue a life of adventure. <laughs> oh, my God, what a good decision, because if you as, as you find out that you have a respiratory illness, that can be triggered, especially now that we're not wearing masks anymore. Um, and back then, when you made this decision, I'm sure there was this was before COVID. Yes, that it was just before you know, COVID. To, to subjecting yourself to this is crazy. And then you said, "I didn't like my job to begin with." What did you do? I was an environmental manager. I found it difficult. I, I I loved being involved in, in environmental management more generally, but that particular job, I was spending a lot of time commuting into it. My manager wasn't really very understanding of, of me and was giving me a bit of a hard time. And I just found the combination not that great, as well as feeling ill for three months and, again, not being given any slack at work for the fact that I'd, I was ill. So, yes, it was all of those those factors together. I am an environmentalist and it was important to me to do something to to protect this wonderful place that that we live on. I wasn't absolutely convinced that I was achieving much in that particular role either. So, yeah, definitely time to move on and do something different. So the next step is actually taking care of your own health, your own environment to make yourself better. So you went in and you said, I'm done. I'm I'm quitting. What did you do next? I 
decided what I was going to do before I quit. And uh, I, I, I wrote down a list of possible jobs. And I, and, and I went down this list. And number six on the list was adventurer. And I just looked at it and I thought, that's ridiculous. But I couldn't get past it. I couldn't get past this idea of being an adventurer for a job. And I still think it sounds ridiculous now, but I love it. I have adventure on my business card. <laughs> and, and I write as well, of course, and I do public speaking. So they're the three key parts of my working life now. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be an adventurer, the first thing to do is go and have some adventures. And I thought about all of the things that were on my bucket list. And one just kept screaming at me, which was to walk the Southwest Coast Path. Now, that's a 630 mile long path that goes around the Southwest Coast of England. And that coastline, it's none of it's very high, but it, there's a lot of up and down. So you go up over some cliffs down to River Valley, up over the cliffs down to River Valley. And during that 630 miles, you uh, walk the equivalent of four ascents of Everest in terms of height gain and loss. So it's, so it's, it's hard you're talking, work. You're talking, you're talking miles, not kilometers. Cause I would think, okay, you're from, from Britain. You must talk about kilometers. You're talking miles. No, we're, we still use Imperial here. Offic officially we're metric, but for a lot of things we're Imperial and that includes distances. 630 miles. It's 1,014 kilometers for those of your listeners who who work in kilometres. It's quite a long way. It took me, I think it was 57 days to walk. It was the first time I'd ever done a, a solo hike. And it, it was also, for me, uh, I'd, I'd intended to, to do this. As I say, I, I made this decision before I handed in my notice and before the coronavirus pandemic had come to the UK. And I planned to, to walk it in June and July, which are the summer months, long days, lots of light, good weather often. And I thought that I would stay in hotels and bed and breakfast, you know, comfortable places overnight. And after the coronavirus pandemic and everybody was locked down, a number of things happened. We couldn't travel abroad. So as soon as we were allowed to travel again, everybody was going down to the southwest of England to stay. And lots of places had reduced capacity. So I realised I probably wouldn't be able to find anywhere to stay. So I decided that I needed to camp as well. So <laughs> I had to get myself a little one-person tent. And it was the first time I'd ever wild camped on my own, the first time I'd ever camped on my own, the first time I'd ever hiked on my own, uh, apart from practising for it. So for me, Which there were lots of Which brings me to there. the... Which brings me to let's take a step back because not everybody is a hiker. Not everybody knows what the heck that means. Not everybody knows that you have, how many days did you take? 57. 57 days to keep walking and hiking for 50. So but wait a minute, because there's one thing I want to say too, which I read about you that um, in Melbourne Hills, you ran a race dressed as a octopus. Is a jellyfish? A jellyfish, yes. A jellyfish. And as I read this and I thought, okay, we got to bring this into the story that Julia the jellyfish <laughs> right here with us. <laughs> and that, so this is to me how your, your adventure started, at least from my point of view. She ran the jellyfish. Why did you wear a jellyfish costume? 
Well, it's, you're absolutely right. It is how my adventure started. And that was because of coronavirus. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere else. And I was living near the Malvern Hills. We were allowed out for an hour a day to exercise for a period of time. And then we were allowed out to exercise for as long as we wanted, but we weren't allowed to stay away. And so I walked on the Malvern Hills. I had intended to walk the Southwest Coast Path that summer, but couldn't. And I had intended to raise money for the Marine Conservation Society, which is a marine charity here in the UK. So I thought, well, I'll walk on the Malvern Hills, do the same distance and the same elevation as I would have done on the Southwest Coast Path, dressed as a jellyfish to raise money for this marine conservation charity. <laughs> so that's what I did. And it was fabulous fun. It was in the middle of the pandemic, so lots of miserable people around, but they all smiled and laughed when they saw the jellyfish costume. And uh, and I had a, a, a fabulous time and got really fit, ready for, for my hike on the Southwest Coast Path as well. <laughs> and so you did the same. You were staying at hostels or at, at, well, how did you stay on during that time? How did you accommodate the distance? On the Malvern or did Hills, you, or is, I, I, or did I lived... I lived at the base of the Malvern Hills, so I went out from home. I walked from home every day. Ah, okay, so yeah. out and back, out and back. Yes, and there are lots of circular walks. And actually, when we were given a bit more freedom, sometimes my husband would drop me at the far end of the hills. They're only eight miles long, and I'd walk home. And so I was aiming to do about 10 miles a day. And the reason for that... Nice which some of the people who listen to your podcast might relate to, is the fact that none of the public toilets were open at first. And so I wanted a walk that was short enough that I could do without a pee break. So 10 miles it was, anything longer, and it became a bit precarious, shall we say? Uh There you go. I mean, I'm a German. I'm fierce. I go wherever I I need to go. I fear. I'm like, no, I don't care. But when it's populated, it's a little difficult. You can't pee in somebody's yard. And, and the Malvern Hills are, are, are busy and there isn't always shelter, you know, there isn't always a bush to duck behind. So, um, mm-hmm. yes, I have become more fearless in that respect. The more I've hiked, the more I thought, well, people can just turn away, you know. <laughs> but so, um, so, so, Julia, when you think, so you've used this as a practice, you, you, the little jellyfish was practicing this, but your, your big goal was initially, before we get to the Camino, is it was the um, Southwest coach, uh, uh, path coast path now you can't just go put on your hiking boots even though you practiced grab your little tent and say okay I'll see you in 57 days how did you prepare for that and a little bit of that you just shared with us but you need gear you need uh, maybe food or cooking stuff and hiking solo literally means right by yourself with nobody hiking with you or a support crew that shows up after every 10 miles that is oftentimes on those hikes, the not uncommon. Is that correct? That is correct. I, I didn't have a support crew. And although I nominally walked solo, I did say that if anybody wanted to walk with me, they could. So on quite a few days, somebody came and walked with me for the day or for a couple of days or three days. But a lot of it, I was walking on my own. And it was something that until all of this sort of happened and I decided I wanted to, to do this walk, I'd never really thought that I could. As a, it sounds and it feels a bit daft now, but I know that lots of other people feel this as well. 
when we're children as girls, and I don't know if it's the same in, in Germany, but here you always get walked home. You know, my dad will walk you home or you should get a taxi home or call me when you get home because it's not safe to be out on your own. And you have this drummed into you from when you're a really small girl. And somehow it, it gets in your head, this idea. And I hadn't even realised that, yes, I knew men who went off hiking on their own sometimes, but I didn't know any women who did it. And I just hadn't really thought of it as an option for myself. So that was one hurdle to get over. And I joined Facebook groups and I talked to my friend Hazel actually had walked the Camino, which I no doubt will come on to. And she was the first person I met who did long distance walking and on her, her own. And so I asked her for advice. So I talked to people I knew for advice. I went online and found other women who did things like this and they were still alive and they enjoyed it. <laughs> You know, I thought to myself, I looked at, I looked, I tried to find some statistics about how many women are attacked while walking in the countryside. And I cannot find any statistics, certainly not in the UK about that. And you know what? I figured the reason for that is that if you were somebody who was looking to attack women on their own, would you wait in a field somewhere where you might get one woman passing in a day or two? You wouldn't. You'd wait somewhere urban, wouldn't you? That's where women are attacked and that's where the problem lies far more than out in the countryside on the whole. So I looked at all of these things and, and I found out that other people could do it, that it maybe wasn't as dangerous as I thought. I asked people for advice about stoves and foot care and things like that. And at the end of the day, I just had to go and try it myself. The, the, the first night in my tent, I was terrified, I have to say. <laughs> I can imagine. I'm not much of a camper. I mean, I will camp if I have to, but other than that, it's like the noise at night and maybe the deer yeah. around you. It's it's a little daunting to me as well. And you I, you I said you were, you were you were camping wild, which means you were in a field or on a grassy spot, not not on a campground, correct? That's right. Yes. So camping where there are no facilities. I did camp on the southwest coast path. I camped where there were campsites as well, but that wasn't always possible. And I knew that there wouldn't always be spaces available in campsites. So sometimes I camped just at the side of the path or in a farmer's field or what have you, which is in the UK, not legal unless you ask the landowner for permission, which sometimes oh. I did and sometimes I didn't. <laughs> Oh, what other challenges came along with this wild camping? Well, the the first night, as I say, I was terrified. I actually did a, a walk called the Worcestershire Way, which starts about 30 miles away from Malvern. And I walked back home and I took my tent and I wild camped on the first night and I pitched my tent and I pitched it next to a badger run. So I knew that I'd get that animal noise that you were talking about in the night, but I knew that. So that was okay. And we don't have any animals here that are going to, that are likely to hurt you. So it's a bit, it's a bit different. I wasn't in bear country. <laughs> um, <laughs> and when I went to, to, to bed and zipped up my tent, I just imagined, I think I've watched one too many awful films. I just imagined a whole bunch of people in cars coming along and running donuts around the field and thinking, oh, look, there's a tent in the corner. Yeah, we can play and cause trouble. And <laughs> that is the thought that I went to, to sleep with. So 
that, as I say, I was terrified, but of course it didn't happen. That's just not how it works. Nobody knew I was there for a start. Apart from my husband, I did call in and tell him where I was. <laughs> that was um, my next question. I was like, so your husband, he was going, okay, honey, let's go. See you later. See you in, in 57 days. Do you have a tracking device that he knew where you were? So was there some, or did you just call in from wherever you were? He didn't always know where I was. And on the southwest coast path, there isn't always a phone signal, but a lot of the time there is. So mainly I did check in and tell him where I was. And I also told him if I had if I was going to have a couple of days on the path where I was likely to be wild camping and I might not have a signal so that he didn't worry if I didn't call him. So, mm -hmm. yes, I had I had those sorts of things in play. Walking here is or hiking here is probably a bit different to hiking in the States in that there are quite a lot of people around. Quite a lot of people walk the southwest coast path in both directions as well. So if you get into trouble, somebody will probably come along to help soon enough. You're, it's unlikely to be days before somebody comes comes across you. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's good to know because it's true. Yeah, in the States, you could be hiking for a while and there's nobody. Mm. Yeah, the Pacific Crest Trail, I, there's a book and I can't think of the author right now that did the Pacific Crest Trail and wrote about it. And it's like days of nothing. Nobody. I was, I was astonished, yes. I think it's called yep. Wild and it's by Cheryl Strait. Yes, exactly. That's the one. That's a great book. It, it is. And she, she says that there, there are paths where you can walk for two weeks in between roads, which for somebody from the UK is just unfathomable in terms of distance. <laughs> It surely is. You know, when we when I think about, you know, your wild camping, the, the first time I camped was in the Grand Canyon. And I brought a, a one woman tent because somebody said you, you can camp in the Grand Canyon. But a, my biggest problem was I couldn't get the, the stakes into the ground. The ground was so hard that I could not get those things in. And somebody helped me. They had a hammer and they're like, okay, let me help you. But because I was like, I can't put up this tent. It's just falling over. It's it's not held up. So that was my challenge with camping. <laughs> well, that, that first night with my tent, the, the tent sort of half collapsed. The, the outer um, fly sheet and the inner fly sheet touched each other so it was quite wet inside that that morning but that's why you practice isn't it you learn what doesn't doesn't work you learn how yep. to pitch your tent if you need to where where it's rocky and you can't put the tent pegs in you learn how to pitch it so that it's taut enough to stay dry and and for me I like to practice these things first so I can learn close to home and dry myself out at home if I need to the next morning rather than having another way smarter <laughs> <laughs> way smarter than what I did I'm like oh yeah sure I can do this <laughs> no Julia let's let's move on to from adventure number one the 630 mile hike to your cycling the England's King Arthur's Way what what happened between the walking and the bike how did you get to the biking I have a school friend Alison and when we turned 50, we started going on adventures together, just little adventures, because we thought that would be a good way to celebrate our 50th birthday. And we decided it's King Alfred's way. We, we decided that we'd like to do something together that was a bit bigger, a bit more significant. She is a dead keen mountain biker. 
And so I thought, I've always wanted to cycle King Alfred's Way ever since. It's only been open for a few years, but as soon as I heard that it had opened, I thought it looked like a fabulous route. It, it's off-road. It's about 300 miles. And Sorry, it's about 217 miles, 350 kilometres. And it goes through some really lovely and interesting landscapes in the south of England. And so I said to her, Alison, do you want to cycle this with me? We'll make that our adventure for this year. And she rather foolishly said yes. And so that's what that's what we did. And it was interesting because I had a another long distance hike that summer. And then I had six weeks in which to get cycle fit because walking fitness and cycling fitness is somewhat different to each other. Why so is that? I had why? Sorry, mm -hmm. did you say why? Why? Because... I want to hear from you. Why? Because I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm, I've done this. My legs are strong. And that's what other people may think. Oh, I've been walking this far. I don't need to bike. I can just take my legs and get it on the bike. Tell us. You're just using your muscles in a slightly different way between walking and cycling. So even though your lungs might be fit, you might have good stamina. It doesn't mean that your muscles are prepared for that particular set of movements. And it is different on a bike to walking. The other thing about cycling is that there's a bit more technique involved in it. You know, walking is something that I've been doing since I was a child. Cycling too, but you still, you walk every day. You don't necessarily cycle every day. And manoeuvring the bike and how to relax. One of, one of my big mantras to myself on this trip was relax, Julia, because going downhill, I'd find myself really tensing up. And if you tense up, the bike doesn't behave in the same way as if you relax. If you relax, it sort of dances underneath you, I discovered. And if you tense up it or just doesn't quite work and it wants to throw you off and life's much harder and you're much less elegant and I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm thinking more saddle soreness as a triathlete i'm thinking oh, yes. sitting on a saddle ladies this can be a challenge yeah i did i did make the mistake one day of going out without my cycling shorts on and uh, i wouldn't recommend it i'd always recommend you. wearing your padded shorts that was not nice <laughs> So you two and girls went on the cycling trip together. How was that? We did. We did. It was difficult, should we say. The days were longer than the guidebook suggested they were. Or our, our GPS, uh, both of us, suggested that the days were longer than the book said. And also, the cycling was a bit harder than, than we'd anticipated. For Alison... She's a mountain biker and she loves the challenge of a, of a difficult slope, whether she's cycling up or down. Whereas I discovered that I rather like pootling along on country roads and not having to think too much about where I was placing my tyre and enjoying the view. So we both had very different views about the bits that we enjoyed most and the bits that we enjoyed least on the trip. And Ali found it a bit of a slog and she let me know that she did. As I write about in my book, I'm not speaking out of turn here. And um, that's okay because uh, we all learn about each other as we go along. We're like, you, you're thinking, okay, this is great. And she will be thinking, God, is she slow? Man, let's move or whatever she's thinking. But that's okay. It is okay. And what, what I discovered, I mean, I've known Alison all my life. And after about three days of her complaining about it being a slog, I said to her, Look, I think that we were, we were cycling near her house. I said, I think we should just go back to your house. You should stay and I'll finish it on my own. And she said, absolutely not. 
we started this together and we'll finish it together. And she had no idea that her complaining about it all the time was really getting into my head and making it harder for me as well. So from that moment on, when she started smiling, she started enjoying it more and so did I. It was fantastic. So having that conversation with her, it, it, I, I wasn't aggressive or combative in any way. I just said, look, I think you should go home and I, I should carry on, on my own because you're obviously miserable. It was, it was really worth having that conversation because it really lifted the last few days of the trip for us. And ultimately, we both had a brilliant experience on it. Isn't that the truth? Instead of just keeping it in our heads, just say it, just spit it out. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are, but you can stay true to yourself and not be silently miserable, working along and pretending that things are great. I think that's so good. It probably added another dimension to your friendship. I like the fact that I could do that and that she responded so positively to the fact that I did as well. And there, and there's, you know, there are no negative implications of that. That's fantastic. Oh, nice. I love that. Have you heard of the Fearlessly Fit Club? It's an effective online fitness program tailored for women over 50. Affordable, accessible, and perfect for those struggling to fit fitness into their day. What makes this program different? Well, those workouts are specifically designed for our age group, blending everything from Pilates to strength training, focusing on flexibility and joint health. So it's not just about getting fit, but also about staying healthy and feeling vibrant. No need for fancy equipment, just a small space and your can-do attitude. There's a variety of classes so you can mix and match and find your perfect routine. The best part? You can find the link to these classes in the show notes. And to get you started, we're offering a special gift. Your first three classes absolutely free. So what do you say? Are you ready to fit some fun and fitness into your day? Let's get started with your free classes today. Now let's talk about what you're going to, what you are writing in your book as we're, we're speaking is the Camino. The Camino de Santiago is oftentimes people that know the name uh, referred to as a, as a um, path of redemption, a path of finding yourself, a path of dealing with issues. Many people walk it to get clarity in their life and, and make different decisions or deal with, with, um, sadness or difficult parts in their lives. And uh, so why did you choose to hike the Camino de Santiago and which part did you hike? There are two answers to both of those questions because I walked two Caminos last year. The first one was the Camino Frances, which runs from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port in France across northern Spain and a big smile across, across the map to Santiago. I didn't walk the whole of the distance. And the reason for that is because I was actually booked on another trip to Costa Rica last year and the trip fell through at the last minute. My friend Hazel, who I've talked about already, had booked a Camino trip for herself. And so she said to me, would you like to come with me on this Camino trip? So I joined her a couple of weeks into her, into her hike. The reason that I was keen at that point wasn't just because my trip had been canceled. 
it was because since Hazel went on her first Camino about seven years ago, the thought of, of pilgrimage had grown in my mind. I'd become curious about it. I'm not a Christian, so nor is she. So why was it so special to her? What is it about the Camino or pilgrimage that might be good for people, whether they're Christians or not? And, and this thought had been growing and I'd been buying books about pilgrimage routes and things like that. So actually, this was a great opportunity for me to experience one for myself. And on for that one, I just went with an open mind to see whether pilgrimage would be any different for me than another long distance hike. And then the second one was the Portuguese route, which I did a week of at Christmas with my husband. We walked from Vigo, which is in Spain, um, up to Santiago. And we walked that because we've, we've always had a 10 year plan. We wrote it first when we got married and we update it periodically. And so many things have changed, not least this idea of me becoming an adventurer. But the plan had got into a state of disarray and we needed to tidy it up and, and really think about how we wanted our future life together to develop. And so we decided that we would walk the Camino together for a week and think about that while we were away. What would you come up with? Well, we talked a lot about our values. <laughs> you don't have to share everything. Uh, it's okay, but I'm asking you for everything. Bring it on. Bring it on, Julia. We like to hear it all. We, we always know. We, all, we have always known that two key values for us are making a difference, leaving a positive legacy and adventure. Now, sometimes that, that we have other values as well, but they're two of the, the prominent ones. And sometimes they cause a conflict or they conflict with each other because you might want to go on adventure. For example, uh, going to New Zealand has always been on Mike's bucket list. He's always wanted to go to New Zealand. But any time that we've planned to go, we've shied away from it because of the environmental implications of the flight to the other side of the world. So the idea of leaving a positive legacy, and Mike and I are both environmentalists, so it's social and environmental things that, that we've worked on, and having this great adventure that, that we've always wanted to do or that he's always wanted to do, they contradict each other. And it's difficult sometimes to reconcile those things. We've decided that two things. First of all, that we are going to go to New Zealand and that we are going to go to Japan on the way there all the way back because Japan's always been on my bucket list. And for similar reasons, I've never made it there yet. So we are going to do both of those things and we'll work on environmental and social projects when we're there. And we found this organization that you can volunteer with. So we're also going to spend some time uh, traveling around Europe and possibly Canada as well, because we met some people from Canada who, um, we liked on the on the pilgrimage on the Camino, who we might like to go and visit. And this organization helps you to volunteer and stay with local people, work on projects that are important to them. So we thought we'd spend a couple of years traveling, traveling around doing those sorts of things and leaving a legacy in a different way to how we have in our working life. And of course, I'll write about it as well, because that's what I like to do, just to, to inspire other people and to help them think about what they can do with their lives. I think these are some very valid thoughts that that you are sharing with us, because we don't think about. Uh, I mean, I've we've been to New Zealand, and I can only highly recommend it. An amazing hiking, 
And but thinking of getting there, it is pollution. It is whatever else is is associated with that, or even the tourism that what what you bring to the country and and all these things. And as you as you're hiking, you know how how is your hiking impacted the environment there on on the hike? And the hikes are just freaking incredible. Um, <laughs> just saying, uh, Japan is on our list too. We were going to go there is when pandemic hit. We still have our itinerary of what we're going to do. I'm like, all we need to do is rebook it and just go. But going back to what you said, I think this is something that many of us don't think about is what, what implications our actions have for in, in the environment as we are looking at how our, our environment is deteriorating, where we get more trash, more pollution, and all these things. And this is, I think, a, a really good thought aside from... I'm I'm a hiker. I'm an adventurer. I'm I'm conscious. I'm aware, and I'm sharing this awareness with others that I come across and help others. As you mentioned, for a couple of years, did I hear that correctly? That's right. That's what we're <laughs> planning to start off with. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, let's take this back to the Camino. Yes. Uh, when you go into the Camino, my daughter has walked the Camino in the, the Spanish part um for also no for particular uh, religious reasons she just wanted to do it and see if she could do it and um well i i know she's not gonna like that i said this but she came back with head lice so (laughs) (laughs) she she slept in some of the hostels that you, you know it's there's hostels along the way and they're more clean than others and she came back and her whole head she was infested with head lice and i'm like it just itches my head when i think Gosh, about it yes it was terrible but this is just nothing negative about this but she loved the hike tell me more so you hiked i don't care which which one do you want to talk about the one with your husband or the one with your friend or a combination out of the two is um as you're walking again you had to prepare because i know one of the things as a hiker is the problems are feet. So tell me about your hike. Tell me about what what touched you, what what came along the way that said, oh, I'm I feel great. I'm so confident in this now. And I want to share this. You know, give us an, a picture of you on the Camino. Well, I started, as I say, I had this trip planned to Costa Rica that was cancelled. And on that trip, I was going to be doing some tricky hiking. I was due to go on a three week long hike with a very heavy pack. So I'd been training with a much heavier pack than I was going to wear on the Camino. So I arrived and Hazel, my friend Hazel and her friend she was walking with and some other friends who'd all sort of formed a Camino family around her were a little bit weary because they were two weeks into their hike and I turned up and I was bouncing around the place, loving it. My rucksack was was light because I'd because I'd been very careful with it, but also because I've been training with a much heavier pack. So I was feeling fabulous and I was thinking, oh, this is wonderful. And at first, I think they're a little bit worried that, you know, I bounced around so much, but then they realized that that's just me and <laughs> it's just me. And they got used to it. And then they and then I think I hope they came to like it. But um, a little while in, I, we walked into the city of Leon. 
And by this point, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I can do this walking lark. This is great. <laughs> and it was raining. We, we were in the middle of a heat wave and we hadn't seen any rain. It started raining when we were in Leon. And uh, there's a Gaudi building in Leon. I don't know if you know Gaudi. He's, he's an architect and most of his famous buildings are in Barcelona, which is the other side of Spain. Yes. So I wasn't expecting yes. to see any. And... Uh, and I saw this building, I thought, whoa, that is lovely. I want to go and see that later. So when I had an opportunity to, I did. And I was with one of my Camino family and uh, it was raining. So I ran across the square to the building. And as I ran across the square, I was dancing across the puddles. And suddenly in my right calf, it was just absolute agony. And it felt as though the calf muscle had curled up underneath my, you know, it'd come unattached at one end and curled up underneath my um, skin. And I couldn't walk on it. And I sat in this, in this uh, Gaudi building on a bench and I looked up Dr. Google, as you do, and, uh, and concluded that I'd torn my calf muscle. And it was going to take six to eight weeks to recover from a torn calf muscle. And I thought, okay. Well, not okay. <laughs> I didn't think okay, but what? What I, now? I, I had to. Yeah, I thought the first thing I need to do is get back to the hotel. So, my friend who I was with, uh, also called Mike, carried me back to the hotel because I could not walk it. And I got back to my room, and I put my leg up. I wrapped a wet towel around it to to cool it off, and uh, and I spoke to my husband Mike on the phone. And had an, e had an evening off when they all went around exploring the, the city. And I was, at that point, I was thinking, I don't know whether I can continue this Camino or not. And I talked to my husband, Mike, as I say, and we talked about all sorts of other ways that I could do it. If I couldn't walk, what could I do? I could get a scooter or a bike or a sedan chair and get people to carry me. We were coming up with all sorts of ridiculous ways that I could carry on. But at least it put a smile on my face. And the next morning I got up and I could do the tiniest of steps into the bathroom. And I thought, okay, this is better than I'd feared. And I got a taxi to the place that we were staying that night. And the person that owned the hostel that we were staying in was quite grumpy with me. And I, so I was probably quite grumpy back, but I don't remember that. <laughs> but in the, in the following morning, there was no phone signal there. And so his staff had offered to call a taxi for me the next morning. And he said, I don't understand why you're getting a taxi. I said, well, I'm a pilgrim, but I can't walk. So <laughs> I'm getting a taxi to the next place we're staying. And uh, a member of his staff said to me, you know, Pepe's a physiotherapist or was a physiotherapist. And I said, really? <laughs> he said, he'll be able to help you. He's known locally, really well known locally as a healer. And he did. He, he put my foot up on his knee and he ran his hands down the back of my calf muscle. He said, you haven't torn your calf muscle. You've got your tendons crossed. He said, I can straighten them out for you. And he did. Basically, he ran his hands down the back of back of my leg and suddenly he pulled one hand away really quickly and yelped. And I said to his member of staff who was interpreting for us, 
is he all right? Have I have I hurt him somehow? And so she talked to him for a little while. And he said, no. He says, when when I've healed somebody, the pain transfers itself to me. He says, you can walk now. So mm-hmm. I thought, is it is it really as easy as that? And so I stood up and I tried to walk and found out very quickly that, no, it wasn't as simple as that. I was still in absolute agony. And so he sat me back down and, and had another sort of, feel of, of the back of my legs with his hands and he said he said no he said you should be able to walk he said the only reason you can't now is because you think you can't and you think it's going to hurt and a few minutes later I could walk small steps the next day I walked well I slept for a lot of the day and um, the next day I walked three or five kilometers the next day I walked 10 and then I was back with the group and wow. basically Pepe healed me. And they say that the Camino gives you um, what you need <laughs> and the Camino mm. provides. And I really feel like it did on, on that occasion. So from thinking that I couldn't carry on on my Camino to two or three days later, I was back walking again, almost as good as new. I still had to be a bit careful. But yeah, so things can go. Things can go wrong. Um, a lot of our Camino that family as well, they did they did suffer from blisters as well. Um, I was very lucky and didn't suffer from blisters, but that's because I've learned to trick. Do you want to know what my trick is? What's a trick? Tell us, because we'll, we have all hikers here. I know our listeners. Tell us. I have a friend who runs um, ultra, who does ultra running. He does his really long ultra marathons. And he knew that there was a long distance hike last year that I had to stop on because the blisters on my feet were so bad that I just, it was not sensible to continue. And it was in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and I didn't want to take up a hospital bed or anything like that. So I had to stop. And he said to me, what you need to do is make sure that you wear socks with loopy soles. You know, the sort of Terry toweling socks with the loops underneath. Yeah. Like almost like toweling underneath the, underneath the sole of your foot. He says, even if it's really hot, wear soles with wear socks with soles like that he said they wick the moisture away from your feet and they'll stop your feet from getting sweaty and damp in the same way even though they're thicker socks and they'll protect you from blisters and since then crossed fingers I haven't had any more blisters because I've always worn these socks with loopy soles (laughs) so there you go maybe it was luck but it's worked for me I, you know, and it makes total sense because, I mean, I um, have run ultra marathons and fortunately no problem with the feet, but I didn't keep going and going. But once your feet are wet and they're rubbing, it's, it's, oh my God, it's terrible. And, and I think this is a great suggestion for somebody who's out there walking and hiking for a long distance to look for, what do you call them? Loopy socks? <laughs> I call them socks with loopy soles. <laughs> That's the not loopy official. sole socks. I don't know what the loopy sole okay, socks. Okay, listeners, you got to figure this out. Google <laughs> the loopy sole socks. I have no idea what kind of socks they are, but I can envision it from what Julia told us, what it kind of looks like. So we'll go with that. Now, the Camino comes with challenges, but also some amazing moments. You met some amazing people. What would be like one story other than being healed uh, about maybe the environment, the, the way you hiked, what, what comes to mind is one thing that you went afterwards and you're like, whoa. I finished the Camino twice last year. 
I ended up in Santiago twice at the cathedral. Now, as I've said, I'm not a Christian, so I'm not a Catholic. I really don't have any interest in St. James's relics in, in the cathedral or the cathedral itself. Although, you know, I have looked at it and admired it and, and gone in and looked around. On both Caminos, the summer Camino and the winter Camino, I then used motorised transport to get out to Finisterre, um, which is the end of the world, translated. And a lot of pilgrims walk the extra four days to get there. We didn't have time to do that because my friend Hazel had to get back for a wedding. <laughs> so we got a bus out there the, the first time. And there's a lighthouse at the top of a cliff. And it's at the end of the world. So you look on one side, you can see bays and land, but on the other side, it's just open sea. Um, you can see a bit of the coastline and then it is just open sea across the Atlantic to the States. You know, it's, it's thousands of miles of ocean in front of you. And it's quite wild there. And I loved it in the summer when I got there. But in the winter, having arrived the second time in Santiago and for the second time thought, Hmm. So I've reached the end of the Camino. That's good, but it's almost a bit disappointing, as I often find actually at the end of a long hike. <laughs> but I got to Finisterre the second time, and the wind—it was winter. The wind was blowing in our faces. It was absolutely wild, and I looked around, and you could see the birds wheeling around. You could see the waves crashing on the rocks below, and that wildness, the feeling of being inconsequential, of being small and insignificant compared to all of this going on around you was just amazing. And that, to me, felt like the end of my Camino. I didn't get it the first time, but the second time, that was it. It was closure for me. It was almost like, okay, I finished with the Camino for now. No doubt I'll be back later because that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> That it was incredible. Just that, I love that. And I, I suspect that, that cathedrals are designed to instill that same sort of feeling into people who, who are religious as well, that the insignificance of them compared to God, but it doesn't have that effect on me because I'm not. <laughs> well, it's, it comes in all different sh shapes and sizes. And it's like you said, you have that closure and just imagining being on that cliff is, I can just imagine this and it's like getting goosebumps here over here <laughs> to get that feeling and whatever the meaning of that walking whether it's the meditation whether it's the time alone whether it's the being outside in nature uh whether being uh meeting new people and creating a new community around where you are um can i and it has with you has such an impact on and you and on anybody who does that. But the, the yeah. whole of the Camino is magical. The whole experience is just wonderful. And, and it is very special for being what it is. You, you've had people walking it for a thousand years. There are lots of, there's lots of infrastructure around the Camino that you perhaps don't get on other long distance walks. But that even includes things like people 
make the word love out of stones and leave it on the side of the path. Or they'll write poems about turning your lead into gold and, and, and put them up so you can read them. And, and yeah, there's all sorts of little things going on like that that you get on the Camino that you don't get on a normal long distance path that make you think about things and, and just contemplate life and, and your place in the world. Yeah. So, Julia, what would you tell somebody that who wants to step out of their comfort zone and into their adventure or into their bucket list of how would they start? What, what would they do? I always suggest that people start by making a decision to go for it, which is <laughs> it sounds simple. But in my book, Live Your Bucket List, which is the one that I wrote when I got back from walking the Southwest Coast Path, I start off by talking about how to choose a bucket list dream to go to, to, to go for and to aim for. Because I don't know whether other people are like me, but I have a bucket list that's absolutely f overflowing with ideas of things that I want to do all over the place. I'm never going to be able to do them all. And and it can just be overwhelming. And I want to grab some of those things and actually get them done. So the first thing to do is to decide which one of your bucket list dreams you want to pursue. Work out why you want to pursue it. What stopped you from taking it forward? And there's a process that, that I detail in the books that you can go through that really that will really make you realise, is this something that you will go through hardship to achieve? Because those difficult things the the hiking when you when you're not used to hiking what have you you're going to have bad days you're going to have times when it gets difficult and you need to have that motivation to keep on going when that happens so yes the first step is choose your bucket list dream and then you can work out how to make it happen but choose it and understand your reason why first of all i think also people are too uh, hesitant sometimes because they think, oh, my bucket list is stupid. Nobody wants to do that. Or I don't have money. I can't go to New Zealand just like Julia does. But you can have a way smaller bucket list. And it still is a bucket list. Absolutely. You don't have to have everything. Everything on your bucket list doesn't have to be expensive or take an awful lot of time. You could have all sorts of things on there. You, you could, I don't know, climb a tree. It doesn't cost anything to climb a tree. Please don't fall out and sue me. Julia <laughs> said I, I should climb a tree. <laughs> I love climbing trees. It gives you a different perspective on life. It gets you really close to nature. And it is absolutely free if you've got some trees near where you live. So That's right. you can... There are all sorts of mini micro adventures that you can that you can have that you can put on your bucket list. Or there might be a way walking the southwest coast path, for example. It took me 25 years from when I first wanted to do it to doing it, which is ridiculous. If I'd have walked one week of it each year, I could have walked it. Let's see, seven seven weeks. How many seven? Three times in that period. <laughs> I, I didn't have to spend seven weeks away all at once doing it. You, I could break it down into, into parts, which is also a little bit cheaper. I reduced the cost by carrying a tent with me rather than staying in bed and breakfast every night in hotels every night. So there are ways of looking at things and thinking, OK, so I think I can't afford it. Or I think I haven't got the time. 
but maybe if I change this or change that or maybe do something closer to home or take the essence of something and move it somewhere else, maybe I can do something instead. Again, there is a chapter on time and a chapter on money in Live Your Bucket List, the book. Great. Because it's it's uh, it's also a question when people listening to this, they're saying, oh, Julia took off seven weeks and now she's going to do this for a couple of years. Well, people are wondering, how do you finance this? What are you living off to, to do that? And one you just said, you know, I'm staying in my tent. I make my own food. What are other things that people could do or that you may do to bring in some money? Or how do you manage that side of, of um, your adventure? Mike and I have always lived quite frugally. And so we've we've always been careful to to save and make sure that we have more coming in than is going out, which I know at the moment for quite a lot of people is easier said than done. We've also looked at other forms of income. So we rent out a room in our house on Airbnb, for example, and mm -hmm. that, that brings extra income in. And you could maybe do something like that and put all of that extra money into a, an adventure pot or a bucket list pot. Maybe you could work some extra shifts at work. And again, put the money to one side. Don't just put it into your everyday household expenditure. Maybe, as I say, you can make the adventure cheaper as well. So you can look at it from both ways. See if you can increase your income and, and see whether you can reduce the, the cost of doing something as well. Mm -hmm. Just be inventive Absolutely. and be creative. <laughs> you, you know, we ran, uh, I don't know how long ago now, maybe maybe eight, 10 years ago by now, maybe that long. I can't remember. But I wanted to really run a marathon in Antarctica. And the trip was quite expensive because you had to fly to Buenos Aires and you had to get on the boat and then you had to do whatever you had to do to, to buy gear or whatever else. And I decided I really wanted to do that. My husband said, you're nuts running a marathon Antarctica. Look at how much it costs. And I was like, okay, let me break it down. If every month for the next three years, I put away $200, I have the payment for both of us. And he's like, hmm, as if maybe not all the way, but in the end, maybe we have to, we have to pay for the flight, but I got what the trip itself cost. And so it took me three years to collect all that money. And it was like you said, put it in an extra account. There was the vacation account. And I didn't take it out. I didn't pay any other bills with it. We just saved money other ways. But eventually, we both ran the marathon in Antarctica, which was one of my bucket list items. So it can be done. Can yeah. be done. And you had your eyes on the prize as well. I, I have to say, cy <laughs> cycling King Alfred's way, I was lucky enough that Alison's partner, Gideon, who's a friend, I said his name, Bob, who's a friend of mine. Oh. Um, builds mountain bikes for fun. So he built me a bike to, <laughs> to ride. But that meant that I didn't have to go out and spend hundreds or thousands of pounds on a, a mountain bike as well. So you, you might find that there are places that you can go that will lend you some of the kit or or even possibly give you some of the kit. If you're a whiz on social media, you might find that people will give you kit, knowing that people, other people on social media will see that you're using it. There are all sorts of ways and means these days. Yeah, that's true. Now, let's. I want to close with, um, in, in your books, you talk about the power of self-talk. What are your favorite, one or two, three, I don't know how many you want to give us, favorite mantras as you self-talk yourself on your hikes? My absolute favorite 
that I use on an almost daily basis, not just when I'm hiking, but other times when I'm doing scary stuff as well, is, Julia, you've got this. And sometimes I feel like maybe I haven't got this. <laughs> oh, yes, I can see. <laughs> you see it? You see it? I mean, you guys, well, when yeah, you guys you watch the this. video, one of my first mantras is, you got this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You can do this, Julia. When I'm running, I... I, I I don't run very often at the moment, but I, I have done in the past. My legs are strong. My legs are strong. <laughs> when it's windy and causing me difficulty hiking, the wind is lifting me. The wind is lifting me. You know, those sorts of things on, on the bike. Relax, Julia. Relax and smile. Enjoy it. <laughs> so all of these positive things, because it's very easy to let the, the little naysayer sit on your shoulder and say, you can't do this. You can't get up this hill. Um, this, this is far too difficult for you. You're a girl. You can't do this. You know, all of those sorts of things going on. And you need to replace that with something a little bit more positive. And another favourite, when I, particularly when I was walking the southwest coast path, because it's a coastal route and there are lots of bays, you can turn around and look behind you and you can see for a day or two days walking behind you. And you can see that far ahead of you as well quite often. And so if I was thinking, I don't know whether I can do this, I'd turn around and say, well, you've done that, Julia. You've done that you can do this <laughs> so it's that as well remembering that you've done something difficult before you can do something difficult again that's awesome i think these are just really uplifting and bucket list worthy mantras that anybody <laughs> can borrow from from us as you're giving them so freely away so julia i want to thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your hiking experience with our listeners and the, the ups, the downs and the experience and, and what can happen and how your life has changed because you started to embrace not only your bucket list, but the adventure in you. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Heike. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me in today's discussion all about midlife adventure, defying age with a fitness bucket list with my guest, Julia Godfellow-Smith. If you'd like to learn more about Julia, please check out her social media channels. We provided links to those in the show note captions. In addition, check out all of Julia's or the particular book we're talking about, Walking the Camino, out as well with the link in the show notes. If you're learning from and you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's a zero cost way to support us. In addition, please subscribe to the Pursue Your Spark podcast on Apple and Spotify and give the show an up to five star review. If you have any questions or comments or topics or guests you'd like me to cover on the Pursue Your Spark podcast, please put them in the comment section on YouTube. I read all the comments and I will respond there. If you're not already following me on social media, we're at Heike Yates on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and TikTok. And I should mention that on those platforms mentioned, I cover fitness, Pilates, strength, and intermittent fasting topics for empty nester moms over 50, 60, and beyond, which may overlap with the Pursue Your Spark podcast. 
Get on the list for my weekly newsletter by grabbing one of my free guides for empty nester mom over 50 to reclaim your health by going to heikeyates.com. Thank you for joining me in today's discussion about midlife adventure, defying age with a fitness bucket list with my guest, Julia Godfellow-Smith. Thanks so much for being here and I'll see you next time on the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Ciao. Hey, just a quick heads up. The Pursue Your Spark podcast will go on vacation. Yes, we are. And we have been every year since this podcast started airing in the month of August. So month of August is time to chill, relax, maybe go to the beach, do whatever you want to do and listen to episodes you might have missed on the show. So I'll see you back in September with fresh new content and new guests. Can't wait to hear about your summer.